Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Throughout the 50 days of Easter, sacred music for the world, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Listen 24-7 to sacred music for the Easter season. LPR, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Harry G. Hutchison joins us today. He is Senior Counsel and Director of Policy at the American Center for Law and Justice. He is also Distinguished Professor of Law at Regent University. His new book is called Requiem for Reality, Critical Race Theocrats and Social Justice Dystopia. That's a good mouthful, but it is a good one. Uh, That's our topic today. Welcome, Professor Hutchison. Well, thanks so much, Mark. Really appreciate this. Uh, good, good question there, right, right there in the title. Uh, the term critical race, th- critical race theocrats, why do you not call them critical race theorists? Why theocrats? Excellent question. Um, I call them theocrats because ultimately I conclude, among other things, that critical race theory is really a religion. And the theorists have become, if you will, the theocrats, the ones who basically conform to a particular ideology and then demand that their audience conform. So they're looking for uniformity of uh, thought and conformity of action. And essentially, critical race theorists, they have created a doctrine which social justice warriors essentially have accepted full stop. And this doctrine is often very, very pernicious. Um, A professor at Villanova, for instance, just this week wrote an article in the Compact magazine, um, and he's from Villanova, and he's a leftist. He he strongly supports uh, black history, perhaps even black revolutionary thought, but he was essentially brought to his knees because he had uh, 16 to 17 students who at the end of this four-week period, they refused to speak to him because what was he doing wrong? He was speaking the facts. And the facts are often inconsistent with the narrative offered by uh, these religious leaders who uh, lead the critical race theory movement. You know, I, I read that compact piece. It's really made the rounds, and it is astonishing that the teachers, he's a pretty hard left-wing kind of guy, very progressive. He's black. He he is very experienced in, in, in a lot of the movement. And boy, these students, they just turned on him because he was, what, I, I guess you'd say, he was insufficiently catechized. He he was not yes. uh, he was not fully on board with with the identity politics. I mean, th- these days it seems like, and I, and I think you're right. Theocrats is a better term than theorists because I mean, when I was in the graduate school in the 1980s, I mean, the first principle of critical theory was sort of you know independence, uh, dissent, no conformity. Uh, you know, Foucault, we're going to challenge the system, the man, the establishment. 
and boy, this is now this is now the the establishment, and you you better go along, or you're uh, or or you're in trouble. I'm I'm hoping that more of the language of theocracy in this case does you know does does spread uh, now the you know the 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 dystopia side of it. I mean, you 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 mingle a lot of the terms are theocrats, dystopia, uh, justice. Uh, alongside that, I mean, it sounds very powerful and, and daunting, but you also say that America's elites at the beginning uh, here in the book are now marked by a prevailing mood of futility. That's your word, futility. What, what is that trait? What, what, why, why do they feel weak or helpless, powerless? Uh, what is the futility about? Well, the futility, um, let me unpack it this way. You have futility with respect to certain elites who don't necessarily know how to deal with the language, with the beliefs, with the actions demanded by critical race theorists. Hmm. Uh, On the other hand, it's important to keep in mind that many cultural elites have simply captured the movement. They've become woke themselves. They profit from this particular movement. So, for instance, Ibram X. Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, they earn up to $40,000 an hour preaching <laughs> this doctrine uh, to individuals who wish to conform their actions, their beliefs to whatever these elites suggest. Um, but there are also elites, um, let's call them, for instance, moderate to progressive uh, Democrats who don't fully understand what to do or what to say. In some respects, they disagree fundamentally with the lack of a factual foundation for many of the critical race theorist claims. But on the other hand, they recognize that if they speak out, uh, they will, in some (laughs) respects, be canceled politically or they'll be canceled financially. And so uh, they, they face a real dilemma. Now, to put my cards firmly on the table, uh, when I started out in law teaching, I found critical race theory somewhat attractive, but I only found it attractive to a limited extent. It was attractive because along with political theory, I could diminish uh, the persuasiveness of the progressives. So if you go back to the 1890s, if you go back to Woodrow Wilson, if you go back to FDR, many of these individuals, these progressives, were actually pushing initiatives that would um, subordinate African Americans, subordinate women, subordinate immigrants. And so I found uh, critical race theory attractive in that particular respect. But ultimately, I've decided that critical race theory um, backfires on the intended beneficiaries. And so if you actually look at what's going on in the United States, if you move away from what critical 
theorists are actually saying, and you examine the data. And I have to confess uh, that I have a master's degree in economics. Uh, I taught at George Mason University School of Law, which is a well-known law and economics place. Um, there are two basic narratives that you have to think about. One is the bias narrative. That's the critical race theory approach, that race determines everything, that everything is systemic racism. And then the other approach is the development narrative. The development narrative focuses on the value of hard work. It focuses, it focuses on the value of studying hard. Uh, it focuses on the value of good intact nuclear families. And it's precisely these things, these values that critical race theory opposes. But so, so when you look at the data, you find that second generation West Indian blacks do very well in this country. Hmm. Asian Americans do well in this country. Syrian Americans, Taiwanese Americans, Korean Americans, guess what? They have higher incomes. They have better uh, test scores lower incarceration rates, meaning as well that they have lower, they have fewer interactions with the police. Um, and so if you actually look at the data, the data basically uh, uh, destroys the narrative of, uh, that the critical race theorists continue to push. And it's a very powerful narrative. And that is one of the reasons why I believe we should think about it as a religious doctrine, as a cult. Uh, uh, James Lindsay, uh, who has written widely in this uh, arena, he has a book out called Race Marxism. And he argues that what... Um, the critical race theorists are pushing is simply a form, an elevated form, if you will, of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism preceded Christianity. Uh, and the Gnostics believed uh, that the God of Abraham, that the God of Jacob and Moses, uh, he is a demiurge and that there's a good God out there. And what are critical race do uh, theorists trying to do? They're trying to reclaim, if you will, that God, even though they may not formally uh, say this, and they're trying to ensure perfection. But in order to ensure perfection, they need to destroy existing institutions. They need to destroy the foundations of Western civilization, including Christianity. Um, and unfortunately, our elites in government and certainly our elites in the academy have been captured by this ideology. Uh, recently, the FBI uh, wrote a memo uh, suggesting that traditionalist Catholics, uh, Catholics who basically believe in the Latin mass, they are a threat to democracy. Uh, these individuals are pushing, according to the FBI, if you believe them, white supremacy. And being pro-life now increasingly is seen as a form of white supremacy, notwithstanding the fact that Planned Parenthood was founded as a eugenics movement, and they locate their facilities, 
facilities disproportionately in black and brown neighborhoods. And so essentially trying to save black lives, brown lives, is a form of white supremacy. Uh, so it becomes um, very, very difficult to maintain a rational view of critical race theory, and that is one of the reasons why I keep coming back to the metaphor uh, of religion and ritual. Yeah. You mentioned the developmental, the development narrative. We had Ian Rowe speaking about, about the importance of that narrative uh, on, on the podcast a few weeks. It was such a better narrative for young people to to hear about than the, the biased narrative. Um, uh, we hope that spreads. You talk about the, the, the doctrine of, of this religion, the dogma. A lot of it comes out of you know, Marxism and uh, postmodernism too. You talk about postmodernism and you bring up a curious contradiction among postmodernists. They believe that there are no moral absolutes, but they are also highly moralistic. How do we explain that? Well, I think it is very difficult to explain that particular contradiction, but I think fundamentally um, I accept the notion that we all, uh, whether you're left or right, whether you're a critical race theorist or not, you have to believe in, in certainty. Uh, and so in many respects, they've accepted doctrinal certainty instead of an examination of the empirical data. And some of this comes from um, Nietzsche, who suggested that truth is simply a mobile uh, uh, a set of, of metaphors uh, that you and I create to explain our particular position. Um, Nietzsche uh, was very famous for tearing down or at least observing that the foundations for Christianity were withering. Um, but I would also admit that even Nietzsche admitted at the end of the day that it is very difficult uh, to give up some of the beliefs associated with Christianity. And so I think what critical race theorists have done is that they've taken some of the aspects associated with Christianity, including a concern for compassion for victims, um, and then they have melded it into their own neo-pagan, neo-Puritan doctrine. And for many individuals uh, in the West, uh, this has become very, very attractive because they have lost touch with, for lack of a better term, traditional religious beliefs. But I believe fundamentally at the end of the day, we all have to believe very deeply in something. So as Rod Dreher says, there's no escaping the metaphysical. Uh, and so even though critical race theorists continue to claim that they don't believe in God, particularly the Christian God, um, they have to then create their own gods. And as part of their creation, they are seeking perfection in this life. They are unwilling to wait for perfection um, in eternity. Uh, now more than ever, they seek perfection and they are trying to 
uh, achieve perfection. Uh, first, by going after oppressors. Uh, second, by coming up with a ritual. And third, to some extent, by coming up with their own unique creation story. This creation story suggests that on the first day, whiteness uh, was created as property. On the second day, uh, whites created a doctrine supporting uh, white superiority. On the third day, they created a legal uh, and political regime to enforce whiteness. Um, and one of the arguments they make against Christianity is that for them, Christianity is a quote unquote white religion, even though it originated in Asia, uh, even though many of the most important doctrines of the church have come from North Africa, have come from Alexandria. Uh, they ignore all of that uh, because they have a particular narrative. And one of the narratives that is really at the fore of critical race theory today is this focus on slavery. They believe that the United States was created on slavery. What they ignore and what is self-evidently clear is that slavery was and is a human institution. And perhaps uh, one of the leading uh, slave owners in the world, in world history, was Mansa Musa, uh, who was a black African in the 14th century, who was one of the wealthiest individuals who's ever lived. Uh, and he had black, he had white slaves. Um, and so slavery was a human institution. The other thing, and this is quite consistent with their willingness to ignore the facts, only 1.6% of Americans ever owned slaves uh, during the slavery period. Um, and slaves only made up 10% of the population. But the individuals who believe in the oppression narrative claim wrongly, I think, uh, that slavery was the foundation of the wealth of this country, even though the slaves were living in the poorest areas of the United States at the time. So uh, I'm not a proponent of slavery. I oppose slavery. But we cannot accept the narrative that slavery uh, was basically what created uh, the United States. But Nicole Hannah-Jones makes this argument. This is her closing argument, um, particularly for individuals like me. There's a difference between being black and being politically black. So hmm. at the end of the day, critical race theory is a political movement. There is no escaping that. And you can see it in the controversy uh, that's engulfing Florida and Governor DeSantis and his views uh, opposing critical race theory. People are now claiming that his opposition means he opposes black history. Yeah. However, if you actually look at the evidence, uh, Florida requires the teaching of black history, requires of a, a look at what uh, slavery has done to African-Americans. So what critical race theory is at the end of the day, beyond being a religion, it's a political movement and it has political objectives. And one of the most beautiful states in the world, in, in the United States, California, has now been captured by this rhetoric. Um, and so in San Francisco and in the state capital in Sacramento, what are they doing? They're talking about reparations. 
Well, guess what? Um, I was raised in an intact family. My parents uh, did not own uh, a TV set. Instead, they took me to the library every single week. So I would read up to five to 10 books per week. Same thing was true for my siblings. Guess what? We have all done well in our society. Now, I'm the first to admit America is perfect, and in my view, it never will be perfect. But if we ignore the facts on the ground, which create a foundation for a better life in our society, this basically condemns many African Americans and others uh, to a life of poverty, to a life of exclusion that is not really grounded in race, but it is grounded in the lack of accomplishments. Mm. Uh, and so one of the things that is really imperative to understand is that critical race theorists continue to focus on equity uh, as opposed to equality before the law. In other words, they want equal outcomes. So for instance, uh, if 10% uh, of the African-American population is incarcerated, then we need to incarcerate 10% of the white population. Well, that's nonsense. In other, and before you can have equality with respect to incarceration, you also have to have equality with respect to the commission of crimes. And most of the victims uh, of crime in the United States um, uh, most of the blacks who are victimized by crime in the United States, I should say, they are victimized by fellow blacks. Those are just the facts, and we can't uh, move away from them. Yeah. However, increasingly our politicians and clearly our universities, uh, as I think you have shown in some of your books, we continue to flee facts. We flee the foundations of Western civilization. We are creating, I guess, at the university level, a brave new world that is based on abstractions that flee far from reality. Uh, and I think that's unsustainable. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. And this is this really goes to the title of your book, Requiem for Reality, the, the facts, the data, the empirical uh, situation, the facts of, of the past as well. You, you know, you mentioned the, the, the phrase when you were talking about Nietzsche, you, you used the phrase mobile army of metaphors. That comes from one, I have to mention that comes from one of my favorite essays when I was an undergraduate by, by Nietzsche called On Truth and Falsity in Its Ultra Moral Sense. And anyway, let, let's. Uh, Let's move to another theme in your book, and that is the phenomenon of, quote, lawless elites. What are you, what are you pointing to with that term? 
well, lawless since, elites. So if you actually go back to the critical theorists at the Frankfurt School in Germany, who essentially gave us the foundation for critical race theory, their argument was that in order to have full liberation, we have to be released from all moral, all sexual, all family, all religious norms. Now, in some respects, this reflects what um, Theodore Adorno calls uh, a post-existence society. Um, And so with this society, uh, basically, we are among, if you will, the decomposing undead. We're not dead yet. And, and so in, in order to really experience life, we have to experience unlimited or limitless, unlimited, sorry, or limitless freedom. Um, and so that opens the door uh, to what I call lawlessness. That means every norm, every law in society has to be destroyed. It actually really goes back foundationally uh, to, to Marx. When Marx was an 18-year-old, he wrote a poem called The Pale Maiden. He said, my soul was once headed for heaven. It is now headed for hell. And essentially, what did Marx focus on? Destroying every fiber, every evidence of existing society and creating society anew. Now, critical race theorists, they're not um, vulgar Marxists, if I can use that term. In other words, they're not focused so much on economics. They're not so much focused on return on capital. But they believe that it is the social conditions which enslave us. And so in order to free the slaves, if you will, uh, we need to remove all laws, all restrictions. Um, And so I think um, in some respect, that's what I mean by lawlessness. Uh, It's also true, I should admit, that using the term uh, lawlessness uh, basically um, is a reference uh, to the scriptural term uh, that uh, Jesus offered in Matthew uh, 24, I believe, uh, about the man of lawlessness. Um, and so I would um, instead uh, change that a little by saying what we have is a group committed to lawlessness. And so hmm. you see this, for instance, um, recently with respect to the horrific killing in Memphis of Tyree Nichols. Uh, you had five uh, police officers uh, mercilessly beating Tyree Nichols to death. And so what's the solution by U.S. Representative uh, Cory Book? The solution is to get rid of Um, white supremacy, number one, Uh, and then number two, to defund the police, which basically uh, sets us up for even more lawlessness. And that means more and more African-Americans ultimately would be victimized by crime uh, because so many African-American males in particular uh, are committing crime. So I, uh, that's essentially what I mean by uh, lawlessness and the rise of lawlessness, or if, for lack of a better term, 
the willingness to excuse lawlessness. And you see this some in New York uh, where they've changed the, the laws, meaning that if you commit a serious crime, you can be out on bail or no bail uh, by the evening. Um, and so I think it's very, very frustrating for law-abiding citizens Um and it imposes a huge cost, particularly on African American communities. And, do, do, and do, do you do you think that the ensuing chaos of of the lawlessness uh, actually poses a great opportunity for those who wish to do the Marxist thing of building a society from anew from the ground up? Absolutely. So I think that's a brilliant uh, observation. And in fact, uh, that is perhaps the underlying purpose of pushing more and more lawlessness in California, in Chicago. So whenever there's a mass killing, uh, we focus on that particular uh, killing. So for for instance, two or three weeks ago, uh, there were some mass shootings in California, in Half Moon Bay and Monterey Park, California, within the Asian community. Um, and many of the commentators, at least that I read, suggested that, uh, and this was before any evidence uh, was adduced, uh, they suggested that this was an ins uh, instance of white supremacy. But it turned out that the perpetrators in the two cases were retired Asian American males. Hmm. And so one of the things I think this whole movement is designed to do is to remove blamelessness from the actual perpetrators and, is, and instead assign blame to society, meaning that we need to collapse to destroy society so that we can recreate society and move quickly towards perfection. Um, and so I think um, at the end of the day, um, many of these commentators, they have an underlying objective. And if I go back to Cori Bush, she is suggesting defunding the police in Memphis. Nonetheless, uh, she spends, I believe, a half million dollars a year on her own uh, protection force. Okay, right, right. So it's, it's just to me, hugely ironic. And you see this as well with respect to, and this is a topic I don't really address in the book, but the southern border, which essentially is wide open. <laughs> but when President Biden is going to deliver a, an address to Congress, they put up uh, fences and walls, suggesting that fences and walls do actually work. <laughs> but we are told consistently uh, that they don't. And so some of these people... I think are very, very cynical. They're, very, they're just taking advantage of this movement. But some people are true believers. Um, no. And so I think it's, it, it is a difficult, difficult problem. And I think at the end of the day, uh, we will either move to a situation where the center doesn't hold well, or soft, some form of soft, soft authoritarianism will arise. Yeah. Well, Harry, uh, I, th th this was my final question for you. You actually worry that we might see a genuine religious conflict coming. Absolutely. And you, you use the term religious conflict. What, what, what might that look like? Well, to the extent that 
critical race theory and other radical movements, keep in mind that critical race theory is aligned with critical gender theory. It's aligned with climate change apocalypticism. Um, it is aligned, if you read Klaus Schwab's book, COVID, The Great Reset, with a whole vaccine mandate and the push for uh, digital passports um, and the Chinese social credit system, all of those things um, would put power in the hands of elites. And to the extent that elites have been captured by this ideology, and let's just focus for the moment on critical race theory, uh, then they will come after individuals who are non-compliant. And that is what's so worrisome about what the FBI recently did. They withdrew the memo, but they went after conservative uh, Catholics. They've gone after... um, evangelicals. They've gone after uh, uh, individuals that support uh, the pro-life cause. In Great Britain, uh, which my wife and I lived, uh, we lived there for a couple of years, they arrested a woman for praying on the opposite side of an abortion clinic while she was praying silently. So that was seen as a threat to the regime. And so I think at the end of the day, they will insist, at least potentially, if if uh, people do not uh, fight back, they will insist on uniformity of thought, conformity of action. Otherwise, there will indeed be consequences. Um, and so uh, I think a digital currency potentially is a real threat in the wrong hands. So in Great Britain, uh, I'm not sorry, Great Britain, in Canada, my wife's from Canada. um, So I followed the truckers protests. If you or I gave $50 to that protest, which was against a vaccine mandate, the government, uh, after invoking the emergencies power, emergency Emergencies Act, sorry, um, they basically suggested that if you gave $50 to this um, trucker's protest, they could block you from access to your bank account. Yeah. So ultimately, your option uh, is compliance in some cases or starvation. All right. The book is Requiem for Reality, Critical Race Theocrats and Social Justice Utopia. Professor, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.